Oh, well, good morning, everybody. It's just wonderful to be here, to be with you. And, oh, isn't God kind? I'm just so overwhelmed at what He's done in our worship time this morning. And He just surprises me all the time. He's just always got these beautiful ways of just weaving His love into our hearts. Oh, I just love Him so much. We're going to carry on this morning with a greater glory. Um, last week, I shared the vision with you, the, the word that God had given us for 2020, the new year, the new decade, and the new era. Then I went on to explain why we, we God wants us to walk a destiny so that we actually understand um, from a heaven's perspective of, of how the, the, the book works. It was open on our life and how the book of life works and how his intention isn't for us just to get saved and to carry on plodding along in life until he comes back, but his intention is for us to rise up into the fullness of our pre-created state to become the mighty men and women that he created us all to be and that we're walking into an era now which is the era of the supernatural where God is going to release the supernatural through the whosoever is prepared to hunger and to thirst after righteousness and then he went on to say don't just give them the word but teach it and so for me I said well God please if, if you want me to teach how to go into greater glory and how to walk a life that has been separated. You know, there are two keys. There are two keys to living in a, in a level of greater glory in God. The one is obedience and the other one is separation. We have to be prepared to be separated unto Him. And we have to be prepared to be obedient with what He says. And it's almost like you start becoming a salmon that swims upstream. Because the rest of the world is going in a different direction. And so I asked him to show me, and he just took me to some scriptures. So I'm going to quickly run through some of the scriptures that he shared with me. The first one that he shared with me was Jeremiah 18 verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made again another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to make it. And so the first thing that God says is we have to go into the hands of the potter. Because where we are and what we've lived up until now has been the contaminated version of ourselves because we were born into contamination and because we believe so many lies. And he wants to reform us and reshape us to be that unshakable vessel that he wants us to be. The next he showed me the journey of, the journey of Joseph and I've called it the journey of pit to prince. And this is described in Genesis 30 verse 24 through to Exodus 1 verse 6. And we see this young man who had a glimpse of his destiny. And I want to just, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you now from, um, I'm not sure what the page is in the new manual. Page 33 in the new manual. Um, he got, had a glimpse of his, of his predestined character and calling. And you know, the truth of the matter is God gives us all a glimpse. He gives us all a taste of who we were really meant to be. And then once we've tasted that, it's like nothing else will satisfy because you had that momentary revelation of the fullness of what your life could look like with Jesus. And then he says, do you understand? Have you had a taste? Do you see what I actually prepared you for? And then he says, come, now I need to get you ready so that your character can carry that gifting. Um, so many people walk in the, in the influence of their great gift, but their character can't carry it. And God has got a champagne bottle full of anointing that he wants to pour out on our lives. But when our life is, when our character is the size of a sherry glass, we can't carry it. 
And the reason so many people have walked in their, in their authority and in their anointing, and then the moment that um, life got a bit difficult, they fell. And not only did they fall, but they fell taking a whole lot of people with them. And we think like of a whole lot of people out there that have done amazing things. I think of Todd Bentley, and I'm mentioning his name, a man of incredible anointing. But he has not got the character to carry the anointing. And his character keeps letting him down because he hasn't allowed anybody to walk with him to bring his character into full maturity so that his character can carry the fullness of the anointing. If God has given you an anointing that's a, the size of a champagne bottle, you need a glass the size of a champagne bottle to carry that anointing. And so we've got to allow God to deal with the, with the rubbish that we picked up being born in a broken world, with the deception that we've believed, and with the picture that we've got on our own mind, and with all the neural paths that are controlling our mind. And that's exactly what he did with Joseph. He said, Joseph, let me give you a glimpse of what I've got for you. And Joseph, the, the arrogant pipsqueak, bragged about things, and that was exactly what God needed him to do. Be arrogant, full of himself, like we all are in the beginning. And he started his journey. And the first place he started was being thrown into the pit. So the first part of this journey is a bit of a pit journey. The next scripture that God took me to was Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, it describes the faces of glory. And when we look at the faces of glory described in Ezekiel, and there's many places in Ezekiel, and then it's described again in Revelations. But you can read for yourself, especially Ezekiel 1 verse 1 and 10. It says there were four living creatures. As for the likeness of their faces, the four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle, um, and, the, and they also had the face of an eagle. So we see the four living faces. Now I'm going to just touch on this for a moment. I'm always amazed that Ezekiel, so many hundreds of years ago, I don't even know how many hundreds of years ago, was given a vision of the cherubim around the throne. Now the cherubim are the angels that guard the glory. The cherubim only ever are where the glory is. God said we're going into greater glory. He wants to position us where the cherubim are. He wants to position us in a place where we are not only experiencing momentarily touches of glory, but where we become the habitation of glory. And then God said that the place that the cherubim hold is actually the place that he prepared for his sons. That his sons are intended to be in the midst of glory with their father. That is our position. And when we look at the four faces of the cherubim, um, the glory angels, it's cherubim that sit on the ark and protect the ark. It's the cherubim. You know, when you read that scripture, you'll see it says the cherubim only ever went where the spirit went. That's the first key. Only to ever go where the spirit leads. The second thing about them is that they never turned around. You know, our armor is always from the front. There's nothing on our back. We're not meant to turn around. We're meant to keep walking. But as they walked, a different side of their face would face the altar. And so when they went this way, walking straight, the ox would face the altar. Then when they went this way, the eagle would face the altar. Then when they went this way around the ark, the lion would face the altar. And when they went this way, 
the man would face the altar. The other thing that I find absolutely fascinating whoo, about the four faces of glory is that God who created the angels of glory, the angels, so long before he ever created man, already created one face to represent his image and his likeness. And I just found that absolutely amazing because right from the beginning, God's intention was to have a people around him that looked like him. And so we see the four faces of glory. Now those four faces each represent a different part of the journey that we have to take as we go deeper and deeper into glory. The ox, the flying eagle, the lion, and the face of a man. Then Ezekiel, again, in Ezekiel 47, he describes the river. Now, in Revelations 22 verse 1, I said to you last week that when God called um, Abraham, he was in Mesopotamia, the place between two rivers. When God calls us, every one of us are standing in a place between two rivers. We either choose to walk in the river of life or we choose the river of death. We either choose to go into the river of fruitfulness and the deeper you go in the river of fruitfulness, the more fruitful you become. Or we choose to go into the swift river and the swift river leads us straight to the, into, the, into the gates of hell. And everything about the enemy is quick. It's instant coffee. It causes you to feel incredibly promoted. But it takes you deeper and deeper into darkness. And so the Ezekiel River is the river of life that he talks about there. And Revelation 22 verse 1 said, And he showed me the pure river of water. The river, he showed me the pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God, and of the Lamb, the river of life, which is the river of the Holy Spirit, comes directly from the Father and the Son. And it is crystal clear. The one thing I want you to know about the things of God, they are always pure, clear, and holy. There's never confusion. There's never secrecy. There's never mysticism. There's never this feeling of, ooh, 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 it's only for the elite. That is not God. That type of puffing up is always connected to the other river. And then it, it speaks in Ezekiel 47, verse 1, and then verse 4 to 5. Afterwards, he brought me again unto the door of the house. And this is talking, Ezekiel is talking about the angel that went to go and show him the river of life. Oh, there's just such a presence here. <laughs> I'm battling even to talk. Whew. And afterward, he brought me again to the door of the house. And behold, the waters issued out from under the threshold of the house. He measured a thousand cubits. And he brought me before the water, and the waters were at the ankles. And again he measured a thousand. And he brought me uh, through the waters, and the waters were to my knees. And again he measured a thousand. And he brought me through the waters, and the waters were at my loins. That word loin means in the arch of the back or in the waist. Afterwards he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass, for the waters had risen 
and the waters were to swim in, a river that could not be passed. And so in Ezekiel, it talks about the four faces of glory, and then it goes on to describe the river of life. That word measured, if you look it up in the Strong's Concordance, means to be stretched into something. And so whenever God wants us to move into a deeper place, He always stretches us there. What does it tell you? When God is stretching you, well, if we look at Isaiah 54, it says, Worship, sing, O barren woman. He takes us where we feel barren, and he says, You sing yourself into the place of having your tent pegs expanded. It is incredibly uncomfortable because we think we can't. I want to tell you now, the most common thing of feeling that you're being stretched is the thought, I can't. This is too much for me. Well, you're absolutely right, you can't. Because if it was up to you, it would be your strength and your effort. But it's not your strength. It's not your effort. It's all about Him. It's not by might or by power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. Because it's all about His Spirit. What do we have to do to be stretched? We've got to let go control. And the thing that stops all of us from moving deeper is that we want to stay in a place where we feel in control. I want to tell you now, the deeper you go in the river the less control you've got. It is a very, very uncomfortable thing for the flesh to lose control. And especially when we recognize that fear and control always operate together. The more fear there is, the more control there is. The more control there is, the more fear there is. Perfect love cuts, cuts out, uh, perfect love casts out all fear, and the moment fear is gone, control no longer has power. So God stretches us into the next place. The next journey I want to talk about, and I remember I'm, I'm, I'm discussing these things with you because I said, God, how do I teach them to go deeper? And God took me to these scriptures. In fact, I was having a soaking time and I was praying about it. I said, God, you've told me to teach this glory course. How do I do that? And in about 10 minutes, he literally gave me all the scriptures and gave me all the points. And he said, that's the pattern. Now teach it. And so it was amazing how God just put the whole thing together. The next scripture I want to talk about is the, the journey between Elisha and Elijah. 2 Kings 2 verse 1 to 16 describes it. We see how Elijah, Elisha was on the top of his pie. He was the farmer of this very wealthy farm. He had 12 oxen. He, it was his parents' farm. He was doing incredibly well. When you know about prophetic numbers, you know that 12 is a number of government, a kingdom government. He was already a man in kingdom authority. Um, he had all of this that he's already succeeded. And in that time, Elijah came to him and he just threw his mantle over him. And that was the way that rabbis or prophets would go to somebody and say, I recognize I want to mentor you. Will you follow me? And, and the thing that was always done, when, and, and we need to know this in the life of Jesus too, that when Jesus walked into the town and he went up to men and he said, follow me, he didn't say follow me and they blindly followed somebody they didn't know. The routine of a rabbi was that when they walked up to somebody and they said, follow me, it was the greatest honor to the family when their son had been chosen by a rabbi to be mentored by him. And automatically, people would just drop everything and follow them because it was a great honor to be chosen. Jesus was not a carpenter. There's one scripture in the Bible that talks about Jesus being a carpenter's son. He was not a carpenter. In Nazareth, they said to you, aren't you the carpenter referring to the fact his father that came from Nazareth was a carpenter and he grew up in the house of a carpenter. 
But Jesus himself was a rabbi. He had done everything that the, the boys usually did, and that's a story for another day. And so when the rabbi came to town, and he went to different people, and he said, follow me, they dropped everything. Haven't you ever wondered why 12 men would just literally walk away from what they were doing and fo follow a stranger? Because they knew he was a rabbi, and, and he chose them. Now that's exactly what Elijah did. Elijah went up to Elisha. Elisha was a successful farmer. He was doing amazing things. He was recognized in the community. They were wealthy. If you listen to the description of what he had, he was a wealthy man. And he threw his mantle on him and he walked away. And that was the invitation to follow. And Elisha said this. He said, um, well, I need to go back and, and, and just discuss it with my parents. And I'm paraphrasing. And I need to go back and just... And Elijah said, what have I done? Now, the very first thing I want you to know about going deeper... If you don't desire to go deeper, God can't take you. I spoke last week about you've got to seek it, you've got to look for it, you've got to be positioned, you've got to be expectant, and you've got to operate in it. You've got to want to go deeper. We cannot go deeper in God half-heartedly thinking, that's a good idea, we'll see how it works. And Elijah said of Elisha, what have I done? And he walked away. And Elisha immediately burnt everything. He burnt everything. He just said, I'm not having anything of my past. And I'm running after this man. And as you look at this journey, because he took him from Gilgal, then he took him to Bethel. Then after Bethel, he took him to Jericho. And after Jericho, he took him to the Jordan River. And if you look at that journey, every stop, there were 50 prophets saying, don't go further. Don't do this. Do you know what's happening? There are always people. From today, I'm telling you, there will always be people telling you, don't do this. They will tell you you're being religious, you're being legalistic. They'll tell you all kinds of nonsense because they haven't got the desire to go deeper. And they don't want anyone else to go there. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you do not want to go deeper. And yet you stop anybody else that wants to. And so we have to know opposition is going to be there. But not only was it the opposition of the 50 prophets at every post... Elijah himself said to Elisha, don't come with me. Stay here. Don't come with me. Why did he say that? Because he didn't want Elisha to follow him because he'd invited him. He wanted Elisha to follow him because he so desperately wanted more. And so we see the, the journey of Elisha and Elijah. Once again, four positions. And then we look at the tabernacle of David. Whew. And I want to spend a minute here. Because when we look at the tabernacle of David, it's a tabernacle of worship. And Jesus said, the Father in John 4, the Father is looking for true worshippers, those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not coming back for Christians. The bride of Christ is not made up of Christians. The bride of Christ is made up of true worshippers. The bride of Christ is made up of the sons of God. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, You've done these amazing things in my name, paraphrasing, but I will say I never knew you. The bride of Christ is not made up of Christians that go to church and have joined a religious club. The bride of Christ is made up of sons that know their father intimately, that know Jesus intimately, that know the Holy Spirit intimately, that are worshippers in spirit and in truth. And he said he will not come back until the tabernacle of David has been re-established. Now the Jews are busy building the tabernacle. 
But he's not coming back for a physical tabernacle. He's coming back for a people. We are the temple of God. And he's coming back for a people that have become his habitation, where his habitation is within his sons. Now, when we look at the picture of this tabernacle, the tabernacle of worship, the tabernacle of David, Isaiah says that the, the, the walls were called salvation and the gates praise. Jesus says, I'm the gate, John 10, 9 and 10. Um, I'm the gate. Anyone that comes in and goes out will find posture. But the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Where is the enemy sitting? He's sitting right at the gate. He's sitting at the gate of the courts of worship. If you are always under attack, it's because you're sitting at the gate. This is the only time that we are always under attack. I, I talk to Christians all the time and they say, you know, I'm under attack, I'm under attack, I'm under attack. Well, I want to tell you, if you're always under attack, change position. Why are you sitting at the gate? Why don't you go in and let the King of Glory fight for you? And so the Bible says in Psalm 100, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. How do we enter in to the presence of worship? I want to tell you, my friends, the greatest weapon of our warfare, the greatest authority of walking as sons of God, the greatest way that we can establish the kingdom of heaven within us. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is within you. And it says the kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. How do we get righteousness, peace, and joy, the atmosphere of heaven, into us by learning how to become worshippers? And when you spend time every day filling up your spiritual tank with heaven, you will go out and what you will overflow will be heaven. And how do we do that when it feels like we're under attack and every cloud of darkness is smothering us? You rise up and with your mouth, you establish thanksgiving. Because it is the sound ways of the mouth that shifts the atmosphere. We cannot shift the atmosphere without vocally using our mouths. Now, when you look at, the, at Thanksgiving, you'll see that Thanksgiving is incredibly active. It's completely your effort. People say, you know, we don't want an emotional service. I want to tell you now that's the biggest lie from the pit of hell. Do you understand that emotions come from the Father? He uses our emotions to be able to show us what's operating in the atmosphere. The greatest gift of the prophetic is through what we pick up in the emotional realm. We cannot have a right-brained religion. Because a right-brained religion, it's all about the word, it's all about the word, it's a dot and tittle, it all fits into a box. The Bible says the letter kills. Isn't that the left brain? Right brain is the creator. I'm so sorry. Left brain. So Sorry, I quoted wrong. Thank you, Kim. We cannot have a left brain religion. Left brain is all about the box. It's all about everything in boxes. It's all about it's logical. It's under control. You see, God gave us a left brain so that we can understand the word of God. Our left brain is vital because that is the boundary line. That is the riverbed for the river to flow on. And we have to establish our left brain so incredibly well on the word of God that we cannot be fooled by what's not word. The reason that the end, the end days false messiahs and false prophets are deceiving people and they're deceiving them every single day is because we do not have a word knowledge. We don't know what the word says. We cannot hear something and say that is not aligned with truth. This is the word of truth. 
And the spirit of truth operates with the word of truth to bring truth into our lives. And so our left brain is for the word and we have to be incredibly secure. I have studied the word of God for 45 years. I've been born again for 45 years and I have dug into the word of God to find answers for 45 years. And today I'm still on that journey. There's so much, much more I can learn. I don't even know half of what God has got to teach me. But I want to tell you this. I'm not easily fooled. I'm not easily shaken and I'm not easily deceived because I know, because I know, because I know what the word of God says. Now, please hear me. I have so much more to learn and I think I'll be learning until the day that I go to be with Jesus. But the truth of the matter is what I already know is enough to be able to recognize a whole lot of stuff that today is flaky, false and ridiculous and people are following it left, right, and center. We have to be so rooted in the word of God. But that is our left brain. Our right brain is the brain which the Holy Spirit dwells in. And the only way that we can grow our right brain and grow the fullness of our understanding of the Holy Spirit is through worship. It's worship, it's worship, it's worship, it's worship. Because the river that runs in the riverbed of our life is through worship and that is why the father is looking for worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth and the more we worship him the deeper we go in the river and the more we worship him the more we move out of the onslaught of the enemy so right here at the gate with the with the walls being salvation this is the dry place if you want to know where the enemy is he's always in a dry place he's always in a wilderness if you want to be in a wilderness, just go into the dry place. The deeper we go in the river, the more we are in the spirit. You know, our bodies are made up of, of about 79, 75, 80% fluid. And the more we drink, the healthier we are. And the truth of the matter is, it's exactly the same. We were created to be in the river. We were created to be in the place of great water of the spirit of God. And whenever we position ourselves here, how do you know that you're at the gate? You're always under onslaught. How do you know that you're in the wilderness? You feel dry. How do you shift position? Thanksgiving. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. What does thanksgiving mean? Well, in the old Hebrew, there wasn't a word that said thanksgiving. So what they used to do is they would tell of his name. So if I wanted to go and, 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 and thank a Julie for being such an amazing person. I would go to everybody I meet and say, do you know what Julie did for me? Do you know what Julie did for me? You? And I would tell of her name, tell of her name, tell of her name. And by doing that, I was giving thanks to her because I was enhancing her reputation with goodness. Can you see the counterfeit of that? It's called gossip. And how many times do people come together to tell of somebody's name about the goodness that they've done. We always love coming together to tell of a name, to destroy their reputation. And so we've got to know that the first thing God's going to do is he's going to teach us to do thanksgiving with glory. But the greatest thanksgiving is the thanksgiving to Jesus. So testimony is a form of thanksgiving. Coming and just saying, Jesus, I want to thank you because you're amazing. Because, And I want to tell you now, my friends, to enter in is incredibly difficult. It is 100% self-effort. It is 100% a choice because you don't feel like it. You don't want to do it. Life sucks. You've just had a terrible argument. The most terrible thing has just happened. You've just been evicted from your house. You don't feel like giving thanks. 
But we don't give thanks to God for what's happened. We give thanks to him because he is amazing and because he's got it and he's going to do something. And so it's 100% effort. And the Bible says that if we enter the gates with thanksgiving in our heart, we will move into the courts with praise. And so it's great effort. It's 100% your effort. You have to do it. You have to vocally do it. You've got to sometimes shout it. There are times when I don't feel like saying thank you to God. I don't feel like being delighted with, with what's just happened. And I just shout it. God, I will thank you. I don't care what's going on. I thank you, Jesus. Because I know it's my effort that's going to silence the works of the evil one attacking my mind. And making me believe that my circumstance is a mountain that cannot be shifted. So enter his gates with thanksgiving. The moment that we enter through, you know that you've gone through because there is a shift in the atmosphere. And then we go into praise. Sure, I can just, there's such a presence. I don't know if anyone else is experiencing it. We enter into the courts with praise. Now, praise is clapping, it's singing, it's shouting, it's musical instruments, it's jumping, it's doing incredible things. Why do you have to move your body? Because you have to get your body under the control of your spirit man. And what does depression do? It makes you sit in a dark room and allow the heaviness to overwhelm you. The Bible says, put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. I have not yet sat with a depressed person and said to them, if you prepare to praise God, that depression will lift. I have not yet sat with a depressed person and have not seen them have a complete shift from depression by just worshipping God. We don't need drugs for depression. We need to stop brooding and we need to start praising. It has there's not been one case where it has not worked. And then after that, it's their choice if they want to go back into that mind state or if they want to continue with what God says works. When we start praising the very first place that God brings us to, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today, step number one, what is the first place he brings us to? It's the altar of sacrifice. The Bible says in Romans 12, it is our reasonable sacrifice to lay our bodies down on the altar of worship. Why does he bring us to the altar of sacrifice? Because he wants to deal with some of the stuff that we've believed, that we've held onto, some of the traumas, the pains, the unforgiveness, the soul ties that we have held onto that kept us in the enemy's playground. So praise leads us on. Then beyond that, once we've had breakthrough here and you can feel that there's been a breakthrough, we start entering into what's called Tehillah praise. And I'm going to be unpacking this every week, but I'll, at different times. Tehillah praise is higher praise. Now suddenly, it's not all your effort anymore. You suddenly feel a shift and suddenly there's something of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see the courts. Who we meet when we enter into the courts is the spirit of glory. He's calling us to go into greater glory, to, be, to change from glory to glory. When we're in the courts, the spirit of glory, our counselor meets us. He leads us. He speaks to us. He guides us. He comforts us. And he says, girl, you've got to get rid of some stuff here. And as we lay that down, he leads us through. And the moment that you get through that, 
it's not so much your effort anymore. Because you see, thanksgiving was thanking Jesus and thanking the Father for who he is. Praise is speaking to him. I praise you, God. I praise you, God, because you are amazing. You are fantastic. You are wonderful. And we sing and we shout and we dance and we party. We see that word for praise is clamorously foolish. We see how David was praising God in front of the ark in his underwear, dancing down the street. And it offended his wife. I want to tell you now, praise offends the enemy. And it offends anybody that's harboring the enemy. They will be offended by your praise. And as we go deeper, he leads us through Tehillah praise. The presence of God starts coming in. And what breaks my heart is this is usually where most churches stop. They worship, they praise until they feel the presence. And then they say, oh, wasn't that a wonderful time of worship? Let's all be seated. And they've just, God has only just begun. And they cut it off. And they don't allow God to be God and to go further. They've only just met the, the, the spirit of glory. And from here, he takes us to the place, the labor, where we just wash our hands and face. And then beyond that, we go into the holy of holies, I mean the holy place. That's where we have an encounter with Jesus, the King of glory. And then into the holy of holies, where we meet our Father. Why do we need to become very comfortable with the tabernacle of worship? Because you cannot go deeper in glory if you don't know how to worship. Worship is going to be the thing that is going to literally change us from being ankle deep into the midst of God. Now, I just want to talk about one more thing and then we're going to have a little break and then I'll start on the first level. Everybody is happy with that? There are two more scriptures that God led me to. The one was just looking at the life of Jesus and what his job was. And the other one was looking at David, the shepherd king. And for that, he led me to Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And I will be discussing that as a separate teaching next week or the week after that. But I just want to touch on Jesus very, very quickly. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that when Jesus called the 12 disciples, and I've already spoken about that, he called them servants. He said, the greatest among you will be a servant of all. And you see, all of us come to Jesus as servants. And all of us as servants have to learn to be obedient to do what we're told. We've got to learn to die to our own desires and die to our own vision and die to our own drive and die to that which we've thought was important. And we just become the faithful servant that does what we were told to do. But as we watch this journey, we see that a day came along. You see, servants have to please their master to be employed. They live for the, for the benefits they work for the benefits. If I, then you. Jesus many times says, if you will, then I will. Many times he says there's a condition to favor. They are obedient to instruction. They do not question the master. They lay down their desires. They die to self to meet the master's need. They earn a salary according to performance. They do as they were told and they do not question. They have no inheritance because they are easily replaced. And their relationship is function, it's not love. And he called them as servants. And that's the journey that we all start. But my friends, in Galatians 4 verse 1, it says that the heir is but a child. And while he is still a child, he gets treated no better than the servants and the governors that look after him. But God's intention is not for us as heirs to stay children. 
His intention for us as heirs is to grow up and take our rightful place as sons. And so you see the day came where Jesus said to his disciples, and it was in John fifteen fifteen, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends, for everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. And so we see that there is a relational change, and there is an intimacy change, and there's a revelational change. You know, when you're good friends with somebody, you know all their likes and their dislikes. You are friends because you love them. You love who they are when they're great, and you love who they are when they suck, and you have this incredible revelation of the things that makes them tick. And you have a relationship that's not based on you trying to please them and them rewarding you for that, but because you just like them and you want to do things for them because you love them. And there's a love relationship and there's an incredible relationship that says, um, I know that you don't like that, so you know, I know you don't like pink roses, so I bought you white daisies. I mean, it's such a little thing, but it says, I love you, I care about you. I want to do things for you just because you're my friend. And it's just a completely different relationship. You're no longer working for reward. You're no longer believing the lie of the enemy that says you're not good enough. You've got to work harder, fast harder, do things harder. You're doing things because you have a love relationship. But you see, that isn't where God wants us to stop either. Jesus said, I don't just want you to be friends. The Father says, I want you to be sons. What's the difference between a friend and a son? Well, the disciples... When Jesus died, they were still his friends. And it was because they were his friends that they all fled. But after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit came on them and they got the very breath of God, Jesus, when he came back in his transformed state, resurrected state in John 20, he breathed the Spirit into them. That was the first time that they received the breath of God, was after his death, and he breathed the Spirit into them. So the first thing that we have to happen, like what happened for you today, Tam, there's got to just be this breaking open of the breath of God within us. And then they had to wait until the Spirit came on them. John said, I will baptize you, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. And for us to move from being a friend to a son, we've got to have the Spirit within us, but we've got to have the fire on us. And the moment that they were baptized with the fire in Acts 1 verse 8, from that second onwards, they had the DNA of the Father. They knew their Father. They were unshakable. And God is not coming back for servants. He's not even coming back for friends. He's looking for sons. He's looking for those that are so full of his DNA, that are so unshakable in their revelation of their knowledge of him, that have the same DNA, that have, you know, when people meet my daughters, and even though we're very different, they immediately can see that we are mom and daughters because we carry the same likeness. And when people meet us, they need to immediately know that we are sons of God because we carry the likeness of the Father. And so Jesus, in his journey, he took them from servants, and there's a season of that. He took them to friends, and after he left, God said, sons, my sons. And this whole journey is about moving from servants to sons. And I have to cut the teaching short, otherwise we lose it. So... Um, We'll have a little break and then we'll come back and talk about the first stage 
of moving from glory to glory.